0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, we've been walking through, uh, in theological equipping class this semester, uh, biblical themes. So trying to find different themes throughout the Bible that we can trace a thread throughout Scripture, kind of like a, a rug or in a towel, just a thread all the way through. Uh, so today we're going to be doing the, uh, the theme of priesthood. Hopefully you have an outline there in front of you. I'm going to be going through that with us this morning. But uh, the biblical theme of Priesthood. Uh, specifically royal priesthood, I couldn't get into the royal as much as I would like to, uh, so we're going to stick with priesthood, but I'll definitely be mentioning mentioning that some. But uh, just a quick outline here for us, uh, I'm going to give us kind of what we're going to walk through. First of all, the priesthood outlined, which is appropriate since that's the first part here in the outline. Uh, then it's uh, priesthood patterned, uh, it's legislation, the priesthood promised, and then compromised, and then anticipated in the writings in the rest of the Old Testament. Then finally, the priesthood fulfilled in Christ and the priesthood today and applied. So, here we go. The priesthood outline. First of all, we need to answer the question, what is a priest? Uh, That's the initial question we must answer in Hebrews 5 as well as in Exodus uh, and Leviticus when it talks about, we'll see this in uh, the the later sections in the priesthood legislated, what, uh, what priests do. There's three main jobs of a priest, so I'll read this definition for us, and uh, this is what we're gonna kind of go off of this morning. Priests are consecrated mediators between God and his covenant people who stand to serve at God's altar doing three things. They sanctify God's holy place, they sacrifice God's offerings, and they speak God's covenant. So they sanctify, sacrifice, and speak. Those are the three main duties of a priest, uh, but they are considered consecrated mediators. So they mediate between God and God. And his people. And we'll see that in uh, section 3b as well. So if you want more details on how the Levitical priesthood did that, you can go there as well. Also, we'll look at the Levitical priesthood, specifically the order of Aaron. So uh, we'll look at uh, the legislation there. Uh, And then also, just so we know, the royal priesthood was always the goal. Uh, Whenever God created the priesthood, the whole point was to make king priests. Uh, initially, with the Israelites, Exodus 19 six discusses how the Israelites are called a kingdom of priests. That's what God's intention was for them, as well as in First Peter two nine, uh, that's what we're called. so I'm going to read that for us here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's what we are today. And that was ultimately God's purpose in the priesthood itself. So we'll go ahead and jump in. The priesthood patterned. Uh, There's evidence for the first priest, Adam. Obviously, we've been walking through the biblical themes. It starts somewhere. It always starts with Adam. So even though Adam's never called a priest in Scripture, it's evident by just the way that uh, Scripture puts him in. into uh, in, in Genesis, as well as throughout the rest of scripture that it represents him as a priest. For example, he's placed in a garden sanctuary. Isaiah 51 describes Eden as a sanctuary and a temple, which is where priests uh, did the work of the Lord, as well as being an image bearer necessitates priesthood. It does not necessitate a holy priesthood. So because we're an image bearer of God, we are automatically priests. Every person, every human being that is born is a priest. It's just, which priest are you for? Uh, are you for God or for something else? And I'll give you a quick example. How many of you know a Texas A&M Aggie? Who said that? <laughs> if you know a Texas A&M Aggie, guaranteed you'll know if you know one because they are priests of Texas A&M. If you've ever been to a game at uh, the Kyle Field, it is very worshipful. There are thousands of priests in Kyle Field worshiping the thing that they prize most of all, which is the Texas A&M Aggies. They sacrifice for the Aggies. They sacrifice their time, their money, their effort, their constant thinking and wishing and hoping that they could finally win a national championship when they have all the money in the world, but they just can't put a winning team on the field. So they sacrifice for their... For their uh, what their, their priestly uh, god, if you will, and then uh, the last thing is, is they speak its covenants. Again, you know if you've met an Aggie because they'll tell you, "Hey, Texas A&M, whoop!" They'll do all the things that they speak the covenant. So that's just a small example. You can have other examples of people who like Tolkien or Shylin or their dog. I'm referencing Lee. Um, if you're an image-bearer, it necessitates a priesthood. So we all worship. That's what being a priest is, is, is being worshipful. But it's who you're a priest after. And Genesis 1 uh, discusses that um, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. And so the fact that he is an image-bearer necessitates his priesthood as well. Uh, and also he's given a priestly commission. In Numbers two fifteen, it talks about that Adam was called to work and keep the garden Uh, Funny enough, in Numbers, it talks about Levites also working and keeping, but that same word is translated to different uh, uh, specific words in English. The original language has them being the exact same word. Uh, In Numbers, it translates it to serve and guard. Um, So whenever it says Adam is working and keeping, you can translate that also as being serving and guarding, which is where we can see how Adam failed in his priesthood because he failed to guard the garden from the serpent. Uh, but uh, that's also a part of the priesthood. Being a priest also means being a warrior. Priests in the Old Testament wore swords um, everywhere they went to, and we'll get into why uh, in just a little bit. But um, that also is a part of the priesthood, is being a warrior, using, uh, using your God-ordained gifts and calling to guard the holy places. Uh, and then also the rest of the Bible presents Adam as a priest. Ezekiel 28 uh, discusses the jewels that were, on, uh, that were in Eden are also the same jewels that were on the uh, priestly breastplate uh, in Exodus. So uh, some similarities between the Levitical priesthood there and Adam. So that's just a a quick argument of why Adam is considered a priest, even though he's never mentioned outright that he is a priest. Further, Noah is also represented as a priest, specifically a king priest. He's the head of his family, and at the time, he was the only, they were the only people on earth. So if he's head of the family, only people on earth, even though he's never called a king, he does have a kingly aspect to his, uh, his rule. Uh, he's represented by, as a king priest by building and sacrificing on an altar. Uh, Genesis 8 talks about that when God hung the rainbow in the sky after he uh, sacrificed to God. And then also um, he blesses his sons. Uh, he blesses two of his sons, but he curses another one. Um, so that's also an aspect of the speaking of the covenant is presenting blessings to the people, but then also cursing whenever they don't do what they're supposed to be doing. So that's also an aspect of the priestly duties. And we also see Abraham. Abraham's represented as a king priest uh, by two specific ways. He intercedes for Sodom. So whenever uh, God is threatening to destroy Sodom, that's when Abraham prays right there in uh, Genesis 18, uh, please, Lord, spare Sodom. And God says, I will spare them if there are 50 righteous. Uh, Y'all know that there are not 50 righteous, so he ultimately uh, destroys Sodom. But then also in his near sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. Uh, Two ways there with a sacrifice. One, obviously, sacrificing. That's what priests do. They sacrifice on the altar. But then also his abandonment of family. That's something that we're going to see in the Levitical priesthood is priests disregard their family ties for the sake of who they are worshiping. Um, So his near sacrifice of Isaac displays that he... Uh, was a priest uh, for God because, again, of his intercession and his sacrifice, near-sacrifice of of Isaac. And then also Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is a famous character in Scripture. Uh, He's an enigmatic uh, enigmatic, uh, character in Scripture. Uh, There's not a whole lot that we know about Melchizedek, and that's kind of the point. Uh, He's meant to be a shadow. He's not meant to be the point. We're not supposed to look at him and see him and go, Oh, Melchizedek, he's the character that we're supposed to follow. He's meant to be a shadow of what's to come. And whenever you see shadows, that ultimately means that there's a light that's casting that shadow. And so we need to look at that shadow, see what it is, but then know that we're supposed to turn around and see what's making it appear the way that it is. So I'm going to read this scripture here for us. Um, Genesis 14. This isn't the whole passage of 17 through 24. This is just a, a section. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then a little bit on in in the scriptures there. Um, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so a couple things there. Why is uh, Melchizedek considered to be a king-priest? Melchizedek actually means king of righteousness. That's what the name means. And the fact that he's king of Salem, Salem can be trans, uh, translated to peace. So he's also king of peace. Where you see that's very similar to how we see Jesus represented as king of righteousness and king of peace. But we also see that Abram, a- Abraham, who is the father of the uh, Israelites, actually considers Melchizedek to be superior. In a couple of ways, one, he's eating and drinking with him. So Melchizedek offers bread and wine, and he eats and drinks with Melchizedek, Uh, the significance of food there. If you uh, want more details on that, Lee taught on food in an earlier tech this semester. I recommend going and listening to that. But throughout scripture, eating and drinking is a sense of honoring the person you're eating and drinking with. Uh, He also blesses Melchizedek's God, again, in verse 22, when he's talking to the king of Sodom. Saying that he's lifted his hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, which is the same language that Melchizedek uses when he blesses Abram. And then also, he tithes to Melchizedek. In Hebrews 7, it talks about um, tithing and how the Israelites would tithe to the Levitical priesthood uh, because that's what the Lord commanded them to do. But when Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, he's indicating that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if Abraham was the father of the Israelite nation, we have to wonder why. Why is he honoring this particular king priest that's curious and it's meant to point us forward to answer all those questions. And we'll get into that when we get into Hebrews later on in this, uh, this tech. So there's a quote here from David Schrock who wrote this book, The Royal Priesthood and the Glory of God. Um, that's, a lot of the teaching is coming from this book. Um, if you're interested in this topic at all, if you've if piqued your interest already and you're like, oh, I want to learn more. All of this is, everything in this um, outline and this teaching is expanded upon in this book. It's only $17, $18 on Amazon. It's, it's very worth, it's worth a good read. Uh, highly, highly, highly recommended if you're into homework. This is a great book to go get. So um, if you're interested in it, come and ask me. I can, show you, I can take a picture and send it to you. It's a great book. Royal Priesthood by David S. Schrock. He says this, Melchizedek provides a glimpse of what Adam might have been, What Israel was meant to be and ultimately become, and what Jesus Christ would ultimately be, a glorious royal priesthood. Um, Mekizek is a king, but also a priest there. So there you go. That's kind of, uh, it patterned what God meant for the priesthood to be like, but uh, let's get into the legislation as well. So I'm going to quickly go through the storyline of the priesthood in Israel uh, pretty much, I hope with each, uh, each note, there's a, there's a scripture reference as well. So if you want to kind of expand on that note, you can go to those scripture references if you, uh, you brought your Bible with you. First of all, Israel is defined as a kingdom of priests. We see that in uh, Exodus 19, uh, that God calls them a kingdom of priests. Uh, he also says that the Israel's firstborn sons are to serve as priestly assistants. So uh, whenever God says that you're a kingdom of priests... We need assistance to the priests themselves, uh, namely the order of Aaron. And all of the firstborn sons are going to be that assistant to the priest. Uh, We see in Numbers 3 that Aaron and his sons are chosen as the priests. And uh, we also see that Moses serves as a priest. Whenever the rebellion of the golden calf occurs, we see Moses going to God and interceding for the people. Uh, That's where we see that God relented from his wrath on the Israelites uh, due to Moses' intercession. Uh, The next point here, point five, the firstborn sons of Israel are replaced by the Levites. I'm going to read this passage here for us. It's significant for uh, a couple of reasons, um, but uh, we'll get into that here in a second. So Exodus 32, 26 through 29. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Again, this is uh, referencing the golden calf rebellion. So after uh, he comes down, um, when the people are worshiping the golden calf, and all the sons of Levi gathered around him and Moses said to them thus says the Lord God of Israel put your sword on your side each of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and that day about 3000 men of the people fell and Moses said Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one, of, uh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. 3,000 people fell due to the Levites obeying the commandment of the Lord. The Levites were the only ones, whenever Moses asked, who's with me? Who's with God? The Levites were the only ones who showed up. And so one thing that we can't forget is God's holiness. God's holiness. It might make us feel um, that God's being harsh with uh, with killing three thousand people. What we can't forget is that God is holy. Uh, In a word, God is awesome. That that word we say, oh, that's awesome. That hot dog was awesome. Uh, But that's not how that word's supposed to be used. Uh, He is awful. He is full of awe. That's what awful, full of awe. God's not awful. He's full of awe. Uh, We're supposed to have uh, awe for God, a fear of God, because he is holy. He is completely other. Actually, Hebrews 10, 31, uh, which is a passage of Scripture that says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, especially when you are not on his side. And what we see is all of Israel abandons God except for the Levites. The Levites stick with him. And so what God does, again in point five, is he replaces the firstborn sons to serve the priests with the Levites because of their obedience and their um, believing that he is holy and completely set apart and that he's worthy. Uh, Then we also see that priests are given instructions for the house of God. So that's the whole book of Leviticus. Uh, Those are all the instructions for the priests. Um, And then we see that the Levites are given to the priests, again, just like the firstborn sons in Numbers 3. Uh, and then two more points here that kind of go back to point five about uh, God's holiness. The Levites are denied access to the altar. So one of the things um, about the Levites is their assistants. They are not priests themselves. Now, Aaron is a Levite, and his sons are Levites too. But there are other Levites that are outside of the order of Aaron, outside of his, uh, his kinsmen. And they are not priests. So you can be a Levite and not be a priest but if you are a priest, then, then you are, are also a Levite. Does that make sense? So there's that distinction there. And so one of the things is the priest can approach the throne and the altar, but the, uh, the Levites cannot if you're not a priest. And unfortunately, one individual tries to do that. Korah's Rebellion in Numbers 16 talks about someone who tried a Levite who tried to approach God's, uh, God's altar after he has established who the priests are and who can't approach his altar. And in that rebellion, uh, that rebellion in number 16 is the story where God opens up the earth and the tribes fall into the earth and they swallow them whole. Well, after that, the people of Israel saw that happen and said, that's not fair. Very similar to what we saw in uh, um, Exodus 32. And so God sends out a plague to the people who said that, no, you shouldn't be doing this. And 14,000 plus people died in that plague. Again, showing the holiness of God, showing that we're supposed to be reverent and fearful of him, especially uh, because of his holiness and his awesomeness. Let me say that word, awesomeness. That's great. Uh, again, that's going back to that earlier point. And then last, uh, last point here on point five, referencing point five, is God makes a covenant with the priests and Levites. He makes a perpetual covenant because of Phineas' uh, reverence and um, respect for the Lord. Phineas kills Zimri. This is whenever they were... Um, the people of Israel were uh, bringing Midianite women into the camp and worshiping other gods outside of the God of Israel, 24,000 people were killed in this plague. So after Phineas goes and kills Zimri, who kind of um, who started, who didn't start it, but he definitely finished it, uh, whenever Phineas kills Zimri, God looks at Phineas and says, because of your obedience, I will establish a covenant, a perpetual covenant with y'all, uh, with, the, with, the, with the priests of Levi. Uh, because of your obedience. Consistent um, obedience and love for me and love for my holiness in defense of me. Uh, so we see that the Levites and the priests are telling the people that God is holy, but they're also sanctifying God's holy place. That's an important part of the, of, uh, of the priesthood. So we see, going back to our earlier definition, about sanctifying a holy place, the Levites are doing that. Point 10 here, uh, the high priest is established in Israel, Numbers 35, the priests and Levites are given cities in the land. So while the other Israelites are given actual plots of land depending on their tribe, the Levites are not. They're given cities, individual cities to live in. And then also the Levitical priesthood is established. You think, well, obviously it's established. We've been talking through all these points. Why is it now finally established? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, that's where the first phrase Levitical priesthood is actually said uh, in Scripture, where it's finally put a definition on it, what it is. Uh, That's the first mention of Levitical priesthood in Deuteronomy 18. And obviously right there, uh, section 3B, that's where we see the shape of the priesthood, so the specific actions that priests take. They serve in God's presence. They guard God's house, which we've already seen. They offer sacrifices on the altar to atone for the sins of Israel. They teach God's covenant to people, so they're in charge of uh, administering the law and letting people know what the truth is. And then uh, they also intercede for the people between God and the people. That's uh, their duties uh, as well as Hebrews uh, 5 talks about that too, going back to our original definition of a priest. So there you go. That's what uh, the legislation of the priesthood, what God meant for the priesthood to be and how it was to function. So now we need to get into the promise and um, the compromise and anticipation of the priesthood. So first of all, the promise. The book of Joshua. Everything's going great in Joshua. Just remember that. Everything good, Joshua. That's what, no, okay. Um First of all, the priests enable God's people to draw near to God. In Joshua 3 and 4, uh, whenever they're carrying the ark across, they're guarding it. Whenever they uh, stop the water in the Jordan River, and the people of Israel are allowed to walk across into the promised land, they're allowing people to draw near to God to worship Him in this new land that He's built for them to worship Him in. They also see that they facilitate worship for God's people when they're doing that. When they're walking across the Jordan River, there's a command to stay away, keep your distance from the ark, don't come close. In Joshua 8, whenever Joshua is renewing the covenant with the people, the the priests are standing um, over Joshua while he's doing this uh, announcement, this teaching. And so we see that the priests are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're allowing the people to draw near, and they're facilitating worship. Uh, But whenever Joshua dies, and Eleazar, the high priest, dies, who was a son of Aaron, everything... Goes bad. That's when we're introduced to the book of Judges. And if you know the story of Judges, you know that things do not go well for the Israelites in the book of Judges. Judges 2 talks about um, how the people uh, did not know the the God of their previous generations. Why did they not know? Because the priests weren't telling them. The priests were the ones who were in charge of telling the people who God is, and they were not doing that. So the people of Israel were failing to obey God's law, and so were the priests. Uh, The Judges 2 is where we see that they started serving Baal. And they did what was right in their own eyes. The, only, the first mention of a Levite is in Judges 17, where finally a Levite gets mentioned. What are they going to do? Well, not good things. So the Levite actually is brought on by Micah. Micah is an individual who set up an idol in his house, and he wanted it to be a legitimate god for him to worship. So he went and found a Levite, hired him, and made him a priest in his home to be a priest for this idol. And that's the mention of a Levite that we have in Judges. So there's clear failure to obey God's law in Judges. Uh, also in the first Samuel 2, that's where we see Eli. Uh, the textual title in your, in your, in your, uh, in your Bible, uh, which is not um, actual scripture, but just what uh, the writers did to try to give us a clear definition of like where chapters are and things like that. It says Eli's worthless sons, which is great uh, re- remembering them by. Uh, but yeah, we see a failure to obey God's law by, uh, by the priests and those who follow after them. We see a failure to gar- guard God's holy dwelling. First Kings talks about Jeroboam setting up a new system of worship, that he wants people to worship the gods that he wants and not the God uh, of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see a failure to instruct the people. Hosea and Jeremiah condemn priests in, this pass- in these passages right here listed uh, for failing to instruct the people of God. And then they don't offer holy sacrifices. Um, again, talking about First Kings in um, twelve, Jeroboam sets up golden idols in Bethel and Dan for the people to worship, and uh, sacrifices on those altars um, instead of the priests. So there's absolute failure. They completely fail in their commandment. They completely fail um, to follow after the priests in Joshua. They fail to follow after legislation. That uh, God put in uh, the first five books of the Bible as well. And so that's where Israel's left, until there's anticipation to be brought for this potential of a royal priest to come in. Uh, We see uh, in uh, 1 Chronicles and 1 Kings, there's kings that have priestly devotion. So we see David bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, a king who's acting priestly. We see Solomon who is building the temple, a king who's acting priestly. There's promises of a future royal priest who's going to renew the priesthood. In Jeremiah 30 and Zechariah 6, Zechariah 6 actually is a uh, a significant prophecy about the branch, anticipating this future high priest, this future royal priest to come in who's going to renew things. Uh, In Isaiah 66, it talks about the potential of a brand new priesthood, actually bringing nations that are outside of Israel into the covenant relationship with God that uh, they 're going to become priests and Levites. well how's that possible they 're not a part of Levi. That might be a brand new covenant. So people are anticipating what does that mean from Isaiah 66. And Malachi three uh, discusses a refiner who 's going to come and refine things, but he needs a messenger to come before he can do so. So now people are anticipating who is that messenger um, we 'll get to that in a second. But um, also in the last thing is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted um, reference in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than uh, any other passage. So I was going to go ahead and read that for us. Uh, see if you can pick up on both the royal aspects and the priestly aspects. So to see if you can pick up on both of them. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So we see holy garments listed. We see being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, but we also see ruling with a mighty scepter uh, in the midst of your enemies, making them a footstool, shattering kings. Um, So we see the idea of a king priest. Psalm 110 anticipates a king priest, um, as well as these other passages before. So why don't I introduce you you to this king priest? Uh, His name is Jesus. Congratulations, everybody. You got it. Everybody, Jesus is a king priest. Good job. Good job, Taylor. All right. A couple of arguments of why Jesus is mentioned as a priest, even though in the first four books of the Bible, it never explicitly says that he is a priest. We don't get that until Hebrews. But why is he considered a priest? Well, Jesus' birth and his baptism actually introduce us us to him as a priest. He eclipses John. in Luke 2, uh, 23, whenever he is dedicated, uh, the firstborn were supposed to be dedicated and consecrated for the service of the Lord. That's a reference to Exodus 13, uh, as well as Malachi 4. Again, that refiner that's gonna be coming needs a messenger. And throughout throughout the New Testament, it references John the Baptist as this Elijah character. Uh, Malachi 4 forgot, actually references Elijah is going to come to prepare the way. And John, who was actually a potential priest in his own right. His father was a priest, so he was next in line. But instead of being in line with this priesthood, he's announcing the coming of this new priest. So we see that he eclipses John, uh, the Baptist, in that way. Jesus' baptism identifies his priestly service. In Exodus 29, it discusses how priests are supposed to be washed with water for service. If that sounds familiar to you, we'll get to that later too. But priests are supposed to be washed with water Luke highlights his priesthood and his genealogy. Um, in Luke 3, verses uh, um, uh, 23 through 38, he makes mention that Jesus is a son of Adam, a son of God. He doesn't mention that he's a son of Levi. He goes all the way back to Adam and God. He doesn't mention Levi because Jesus wasn't a part of that line of Levi. He was a part of the Adam, uh, from Adam all the way down, and then ultimately a son of God, which is significant because it's going back to God's original plan for priest, priestly service. Also, in Luke 3, it mentions Jesus' age, which is age 30. Um, and in order to be a priest, you need to be age 30. A little fun fact for you. Um, and then lastly, Jesus' arrival promises to fulfill the words of the prophets. In John 1, that's a story where God calls Nathanael underneath the fig tree. Nathanael is uh, supposed to be a true Israelite to us. We're supposed to recognize him studying to mean that he knows his scripture. And so when Jesus says, I saw you underneath the fig tree, Nathanael comes and says, truly, you are the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the king of Israel. Uh, That's supposed to be an indicator indicator to us that this guy knows what he's talking about, so we should pay attention to this character. That if he's the king of Israel, he's gonna fulfill all these prophecies uh, that we have uh, about this future king priest that's going to come in. Also, Jesus acts like a priest. Jesus' teachings points to his priesthood. The fact that he teaches it all is a priestly activity. Luke uh, 4 is whenever he pulls out the scroll and says, today in your your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. Um, So Jesus is teaching his people. Also, he's healing people, which is what priests were supposed to do, that he provides physical healing. In uh, Matthew 8, he cleanses the leper. He's passing his own purity on to others, Versus getting the stain of their sin onto him. The stain of their disease on him. Uh, that's something that a priest was supposed to be doing. Also Jesus is able to purify the temple. Again, we going back to the Levitical. Where we see the Levites who are um, killing their brothers for disobedience. We see Jesus coming into the temple and cleansing it. Throwing over tables. Not in the same way that uh, the Levites did. But still being violent. Throwing over t- uh, tables. Saying that this is supposed to be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. So we see Jesus trying to sanctify and purify the temple, the holy place. We see Jesus' authority to forgive sins demonstrates his priesthood. That's the point of bringing a sacrifice to the altar We're bringing a sacrifice to the priest so that they can sacrifice it on the altar for you. Uh, that Jesus, whenever he's actually sacrificing or forgiving sins, demonstrates that that's, he's doing a priestly duty. Uh, Mark 2, 1 through 12, talks about uh, how since he's able to save or since he's able to heal, He's also then able to forgive sins. That the, there's an invisible aspect and a visible miracle. Since he can perform the visible, visible miracle, it necessitates he can do the invisible one. And then also, Jesus prays for his people in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He's praying for unity, he's interceding to the Father on behalf of us, uh, specifically us, the future uh, generations to come. So we see that uh, he teaches, he heals, he purifies. He forgives sins and he also prays. But ultimately, the biggest thing that points to Jesus' priesthood is his sacrifice. The fact that he makes an effective sacrifice for us means that um, he's this new priest. That's uh, he's this new priest that will save us, um, redeem us, and cleanse us from unrighteousness. I'm going to read this passage here in Isaiah 53. Um, I reference a couple of scriptures there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, and Hebrews. Uh, Pretty much the whole New Testament. So if you want uh, definitions or like how does Jesus make this effective sacrifice, go read all six of those passages. Uh, All of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, and Hebrews points to this. But I'm going to read a portion of Isaiah 53, uh, which prophesies about this as well. Uh, Specifically verses 4 through 6 is what I'm going to read for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we see that since Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Verse 5 says, we are healed. Um, Not that we hope to be healed or that we're healed for a moment, but we are healed. Um, And Hebrews will show us exactly why that's permanent here in a little bit too. Uh, But praise the Lord for his effective sacrifice of his son. That his son came, lived a holy life, died the death that we deserved. Um, And now let's get into the priesthood today. So what does that mean for the church and ultimately us Uh, Well, first of all, we see that the priesthood is inaugurated in Acts. We see Gentiles receiving the Spirit as a sign that the kingdom of priests has come. Isaiah 66, again, referencing that scripture uh, where it talks about that these nations are going to be brought in to become Levites and priests uh, um, for the Lord. We see that this happens in Acts 10. So I'm going to read that for us here. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see they're, they're extolling God. Again, something that a priest is supposed to do, extol proclaim his excellencies but also the washing with water in baptism that's something a priest was supposed to be doing so a lot of callbacks to old testament priesthood now being implemented now and we see that's happening with gentiles that they've been brought into this new priesthood this new um, way that god has ordained through his son and then also we see not only gentiles but we see priests and levites are being added to the church in acts 4 and 6 acts 4 is the story of barnabas joining the church barnabas was a levite if you didn't know So he's actually joining the church, showing that he's abandoning this old covenant way for this new covenant way. And uh, Acts 6 talks about a great many priests joined, which means they're abandoning the old way of doing things for this new way. They see the light. The Holy Spirit has come, washed them, and shown shown them the way that they're supposed to go. And so we see that the church is adding priests, Levites, people of Israel, but also Gentiles. And so there's this new way this new priesthood that's been inaugurated uh, through the death of Jesus Christ. I'm actually gonna skip section 6B. So if you're like, Joshua's going right through the outline perfectly. Yep, we're gonna come back to it. So skip over 6B, we're gonna go to 6C, and go right into Hebrews, we'll come back to 6B. Uh, But the priesthood explained in Hebrews. Again, if you're a homework person, one piece of homework is this book, obviously, but the other one is, is go home and read Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is all about the priesthood and what that means for us now it was specifically written to uh, Israel and the translation of the old priesthood into the new one but uh, after this teaching it's going to be incredibly encouraging to you because you'll you might be able to see some things that you haven't been able to see before uh, Hebrews is it only t- it took me 45 minutes to read it or listen to it, <laughs> if, you, if you listen to the Bible. Uh, but uh, it only took me 45 minutes, so it doesn't take long. So if you have a little a commute that's 20 minutes long, listen to it. Uh, on the way and back, it'll be a great encouragement to you. Uh, but uh, the priesthood explained in Hebrews, first of all, Jesus is finally identified as a priest in Hebrews two seventeen through 18. It says, therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted so we see finally Jesus is actually referenced as a priest in uh, in Hebrews 2 kind of giving you a, a rundown of what Hebrews kind of walks through Hebrews 3 discusses Jesus and Moses the comparison between Jesus and Moses where Moses is a servant of the Lord Jesus is a son He's the one who built the house that that Moses served in, Uh, so he is greater than Moses. We also see in Hebrews 4 that he is greater than Joshua, where Joshua was responsible for bringing the people into the promised land uh, to ultimately have rest in the promised land. They did not have rest. See judges. Uh, But Jesus, with his sacrifice and his priesthood, uh, does actually give us eternal rest. Also we see in uh, Hebrews 4 that Christ is... Supreme. The reason why Christ is supreme is because he is without sin. His innocence, his holiness, his obedience, his life means that he is supreme to all the other priests that have come before him. Uh, We get that also in uh, Christ after Melchizedek in Hebrews 5 uh, through 7, those three chapters there. Uh, I'll read this passage for us. It's Hebrews 7 23 through 28. "'Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. "'He has no need like those high priests "'to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, "'since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. "'For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, uh, "'in their weaknesses, high priests, "'but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, "'appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.'" That's where uh, uh, that Psalm 110 passage of you will be made like a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Hebrews 5 through 7 points out that he had no beginning and no end in Scripture. Uh, He's meant to be a shadow of the things to come. And that's where we see also going back to why he is supreme because he's holy, innocent, and unstained, separated from sinners. Yet he continues forever, which makes him higher and better than all the priests that had come before because priests had to continue to come up because they kept dying but Jesus will never die again. We see his superior sacrifice in Hebrews 8 uh, through uh, 10, 18. Um, getting into Hebrews, I just have to read a lot of Hebrews because Hebrews is great. So I'm going to read this passage here for us. This is Hebrews uh, 10, starting in verse 11. And every, high, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Because then... They sin again, and they have to come back. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The reason why he's protected it for all time is because he lives forever. It's his life, his perfect life, his death, and then ultimately his resurrection that makes him a high priest that there's no longer a sacrifice needed. He's done the sacrifice. We don't need another priest to come up, offer a sacrifice for us because Jesus has already done it and he lives forever. So we don't need another sacrifice. He's a perfect uh, fulfillment of what God patterned and legislated in the the priesthood. And lastly, there's a a final invitation for us in Hebrews 10, 19 through uh, 25. I'm gonna read this this passage as well. I could have gotten up here and just read Hebrews for y'all. That would have been just as sufficient of a priesthood uh, tech, but I uh, wanted to give you all a little bit Old Testament too. Uh, so uh, that, that's just as valid. So please go read Hebrews. I'm going to read this passage here, 19 through 25. Therefore, after everything we've heard thus far, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, with all the knowledge that we have about how the priesthood went, how Christ fulfills that priesthood, what does it mean for us? That we are now to draw near with confidence to God. Previously, you weren't allowed to. The high priest was the only one that was allowed to get into the, the most holy of holy places. But after Jesus died and the curtain was torn and he rose from, from the grave, we now have complete and perpetual access to the Father. And we should draw near with confidence to him because of that. I'm gonna breeze through this real quick so that we can get to some application as well. Um, But uh, priestly qualifications we see, God chooses Jesus. Again, going back, Levites can't just become a priest because they want to. God has to pick them, and he picked the order of Aaron. So he picks Jesus in Hebrews 5. He was holy, again, as we've seen. Uh, He's a forever priest because of his resurrection, and he exceeds the Levitical priesthood. Again, going back to that Hebrews 7 passage about how he lives forever. His priestly actions, again, we've seen already that Jesus sanctifies uh, God's holy place. Uh, namely now in the New Testament that holy place is you you are now the holy place there's no longer a building that we come to worship in and that's where God resides he resides in us and through us uh, so that's where uh, God Jesus sanctifies those places um, obviously through just general sanctification and Christ prays and speaks for his and to his people And uh, again John 17 and then wrapping up Hebrews here Jesus' sacrificial offering makes a way for us to approach God with confidence. The curtain's been torn. He redeems God's people from the curse of the law. He inaugurates a new covenant. He cleanses our conscience, and he makes God's people a kingdom of priests in their own right. Hebrews uh, 13, 1 through 19 is our priestly commission. I'm not going to read that for you all uh, now, but you can go read that later. Again, encouragement to go read Hebrews And before we get to application, I did want to just wrap up the scripture references to the priesthood. We get this in Revelation as well. So in the first part of Revelation, Revelation 1, we see that John refers to us as priests. Uh, We see that Christ is a royal priest who radiates God's glory. In uh, Revelation 1, it describes him wearing robes of glory, the same type of reference that you would give for a priest or a Levite. Uh, And uh, it says that he walks among the lampstands in Revelation 1 which is a reference to Hebrews, uh, Numbers 8. It talks about Aaron walking amongst the lampstands. It says that in Revelation that Jesus walks among the lampstands. Very clear d- display of his priesthood. But uh, ultimately, God's royal priests engage in worship and warfare. I want to read this passage to you. Revelation 19 as the culmination of where this priesthood is going. And keep the, Le- the Levitical uh, priesthood and how they sanctified the people in your minds, and you'll get some of the uh, similarities here. Revelation nineteen eleven through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, That is our king priest that we serve. Um, you see there that the priestly nature, he's coming to cleanse the world of unrighteousness, of disobedience. Um, and so whose side are you on? That's a question for you to answer. I'm on Jesus' side. Uh, I want to, to, to be with him in his, uh, in his glory. So. But uh, that's kind of the, the conclusion of the scripture references to the priesthood there. I also wanted to give you all some applications so this is where you can go back to section six, subsection B. So we're gonna walk through this really quickly uh, just to, so we're allowed to get to some questions and answers as well. There's three things, there's three points of application for us this morning. and uh, each of those points of application, there's three more. So there's technically nine, but there's three. Okay, the three points of application, you, you're sitting in your chair, you're like okay, I learned about the priesthood very quickly, very rapidly. What does this mean for me today, this morning? What can I take away? Well, you're supposed to sanctify, you're supposed to speak, and you're supposed to sacrifice. Again, going back to our definition of a priest. You're supposed to sanctify, you're supposed to speak, and you're supposed to sacrifice. There's three ways that you can sanctify. First off, there's personal purification. This is the Romans 12 passage I have referenced there. Again, these are just small little scripture passages. There's lots more that you could use. Uh, But uh, Romans 12 talks about the renewal of your mind, renewing your mind, constantly uh, looking at scripture, reading uh, various uh, books from authors who are theologically versed and trust and know Christ, reading creeds, uh, church history, things like that, constantly renewing your mind with scripture, Uh, personal purification, purifying yourself just through the, the pouring over the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about corporate purification, church discipline. If we have to practice church discipline here at the church or looking at uh, individuals who may be practicing sin without repentance, removing them from the flock, that's a part of our corporate purification, what the God says we're supposed to do as priests, as well as corporate unification. Hebrews 4 talks about the unity of the brothers. We're supposed to be unified. So bringing the church together as well is uh, a way that you can sanctify the house of God. Next, speak. The church speaks the words of God. 1 Thessalonians, pray. Um, What does that mean to pray without ceasing? I found this uh, definition here. Be conscious of being perpetually in God's presence. Be conscious of being perpetually in God's presence. Since the curtain is torn, we have a high priest who intercedes for us, we are always in God's presence, so we can always be praying. We can always be uh, casting our cares upon him because he loves us. 2 Timothy talks about how we're supposed to teach word that the word is useful for teaching Um, so we need to teach those around us we need to find someone to disciple if you don't have someone to disciple do so find someone to disciple if you're not being discipled find someone who can disciple you find a godly person that you want to uh, uh, imitate and uh, find people that you can do that with so be teaching Um, and then also in first peter 2 we saw the definition of royal priesthood proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness Uh, that's something we're also supposed to do. We're supposed to proclaim this to a lost and dying world. Uh, That's also a part of our our duty is to introduce the lost and dying world, evangelize them to our great high priest who's brought us into this new covenant. And then lastly, spiritual sacrifices. Uh, What spiritual sacrifices can we offer now? Romans 12 goes into uh, this a little bit more detail too, but spiritual sacrifices can be works, uh, just good works. There's a song by... Rich Mullins. Do people know? Do y'all know who Rich Mullins is? Anyone know who Rich Mullins? A couple of people know who Rich Mullins is. Uh, it's called Screen Door. It says that uh, faith without works is like a song that you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. If a submarine has a screen door, it's not going to function. That's about how useless uh, faith without works are. We sometimes avoid the idea of works because it can lead us into legalism and trying to be obedient to earn God's favor. But we don't want to go all the way the opposite end and say we don't need to do good works because of God's grace, because then that dismisses the entire book of James. Um, So we need to have good works. We need to be obedient. We need to follow after our Lord and walk in holiness. Uh, Also, in Colossians, another sacrifice that we have is suffering. Suffering is inevitable for us as Christians. And uh, we need to endure it with, um, uh, with pride in our Lord, confidence in our Lord, knowing that it's going to build, us up, build up in us character uh, and uh, love for him. So enduring suffering. suffering. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians uh, 11 talks about uh, communion. Uh, baptism is also in this. So communion and baptism, uh, participating in the sacraments. If you haven't been baptized uh, as a believer, you need to be baptized If you're not participating in uh, the Lord's Supper, you need to participate. These are the sacraments that God has installed for us to participate and they're exclusive rites of the holy priesthood. The holy priesthood gets to be baptized. The holy priesthood gets to um, participate in the Lord's Supper. It's a way for us to remember uh, God and Jesus' sacrifice for us. So, there you go. Personal purification, corporate purification, corporate unification, are the three for uh, how to sanctify. Pray, teach, and proclaim is how we can speak. And then the sacrifices are good works, suffering, and participating in the sacraments. So before Jared comes up for any questions and uh, answers, I'm gonna read First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 12. I feel like it's an appropriate place for us to end this, um, just talking about... The, uh, the priesthood and what it means for us today. So bear with me as I read this here, First Peter 2, 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for the priesthood that you've inaugurated with your son, that we get to participate in it. I pray that we wouldn't forget our calling to be holy and uh, royal priests according to uh, the the, the pattern that you set out in Jesus. I pray that um, this this teaching, um, these truths would comfort us, give us confidence to draw near to the throne. We thank you so much for your son and uh, what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.